Welcome to Culture Bites, where we take culture theory and turn it into everyday insights. We're powered by Human Synergistics, and our mission is to change the world one organization at a time. We can only do that together with our amazing community, so thank you for listening. Welcome to Culture Bites. My name's Dominic Gawley. I'm a consultant with Human Synergistics, and I'm joined on the show this week by fellow consultant Ash Smith. Hey, Ash. Hey, Dom. Hey, gang. I'm good, mate. Hey, Ash, I thought it would be fun today to do a little um, life story kind of stuff. Maybe that uh, <laughs> sounds, a, sounds a bit much, but, but kind of get to know you a little bit, you know, and so introduce kind of what, what led you basically to doing this kind of work at Human Synergistics um, so people can get to know you a little bit. How does that sound? Sounds good. I'm not sure who it's fun for, but uh, let's give it a go. Let's give it a go. You know, so I guess if we go back, how'd you grow up, Ash? I'm a country boy. Dom, so grew up in a small country town in South Australia called Remark on the Murray River. Not a bad place to grow up, to be honest. Beautiful, um, dry, hot climate, but uh, able to jump in the river for a swim when it gets too hot, but a lovely country town to grow up. So, yeah, it's my, where I grew up and went to school. Yeah, and, and uh, how was school for you? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm pretty lucky in, in that regard. School was always a pretty... Great place for me, not academically, but uh, definitely enjoyed going to school. I always loved going to school. I hated being sick. Mum didn't have to tell me yeah, to right. go to school. So, yeah, I was really, really fortunate coming through the school system. As I say, I didn't necessarily excel early on. I did most of my academic work after high school, but uh, loved, loved school, loved growing up where I did before I moved into Adelaide. So it was uh, into the sports then, Ash? Yeah, I played Aussie Rules most of my early days, and that what took me to Adelaide. I moved to play, well, in those days, semi-professional football, so I, I had to work as well. So I got my first job in the big smoke, as they say, and and at the same time um, playing uh, football for a, a team called West Adelaide in the SANFL. Yeah, right. So tell me more about that then. You were you know, pretty high level in the, in the football stakes in high school then. What was that like? Yeah, look <laughs> – my friends always laugh at me that my um, my claim to fame is who I played with as opposed to who, how good <laughs> I was. But uh, I certainly have some very uh, famous AFL footballers that I played next to, so certainly must have had enough of skill to compete at a reasonably good level. I grew up very – I sort of blossomed very early as a young kid up to probably 16, 17 and had pretty good skills at that point, but it, it sort of changed into a bit more of an athletics game. And that was definitely not me. I was more of a skills player. But I enjoyed it for, for the years that I played and my career started to sort of take off at the, at the same time. And, and in those days, you had to either really decide whether you were going to go ahead in the sports space or, or pursue a career. And lucky or unlucky for me, whichever way you look at it, I chose the, the career over the sport at the time and retired at 21, basically, to pursue my career. Missed it for a year and went went back and ended up having three knee reconstructions later before I realised that the sport was going to have to be put behind me. It made the decision for you, I suppose, at that yeah, point. Some would say a slow learner if it took me three uh, reconstructions to get there. Yeah, right. Was that in a single year, was it? No. No, no, a couple of years apart. But obviously the body just wasn't going to cope with that level of sport after a couple of years out. But uh, look, I love it. There was no regrets. And, um, you know, look, if I had my time over again, I might have pursued a different path, but hey, I've spent 35 years in the HR field as a result of not choosing the sports path. So, as I say, one would say it was a regret or a, I'd say it was a positive in hindsight. In, any, um, I mean, it's a unique kind of experience. I'm just curious, any learnings you took from those days that carry on to now, Ash? Well, look, I've never had that question and I wouldn't have thought about it in that way. But as you ask the question, it jumps out at me because I had at the SNFL level at West Adelaide, I had two distinctly different leaders. Um, one mm. would say one one wasn't a leader. I won't probably put the names out there, but uh, I had a, an old traditional coach that had been involved in the SNFL and West Adelaide for many, many years. And he was the old traditional yell and scream and berate uh-huh. you to the point where I don't even think he knew my name. Yeah, right. And the following year, he got the sack after many, many years involved and we had a new coach who I can sort of mention, I suppose, in Kevin Morris, a great, a great leader, a really personable guy and took real 
interest in who you were, just not just as a footballer but as a person. And I really enjoyed him as a coach slash leader. Didn't unfortunately impact or change my decision to move on to other things. But when I look at just the change from one style to the other, it probably did leave a bit of an impression on you know how I would lead or manage it. Again, at the time, I wasn't thinking about that. But if I look back at an early stage in my career, that was definitely something that I do talk a bit about to other people about the difference in those two coaching styles. So it probably subliminally was something that I picked up early on about yeah. different styles and how they impact you. And for me personally, I didn't like the being yelled at and screamed at and told I was no good despite no matter what you did, you know, you always got the same message where uh, mm. Kevin was very, very situational. He dealt with what was in front of him and I think that was probably, again, as I said in hindsight, something that probably sunk in without knowing about it at that time. You know, it's interesting. Sometimes you get your best leadership lessons from the uh, not-so-good leaders as well as far as, especially at that young age, you know, the kind of leader I don't want to be can help, not just the kind of leader I do want to be. So, you know, interesting True. just to pick up those two different experiences early on in that, you know, and I guess especially at that age, you know, 2021, 20, you know, you're still yeah. a young kid really. Yeah, um, what's the impact, so. uh, you know, a leader, a good leader at that age can have is pretty massive. You know, almost like I think, you know, back in school having that, there's those different teachers, you know, the one who yeah. had kind of checked out or the one who, you know, really cared for the kids and make, can make a huge impact on people. Yep. Very true. And I think you yeah, probably only tend to really deeply understand that in hindsight when you reflect on it down yeah. the track of actually how important some of those lessons probably were in, in shaping us in today. I definitely had them through my career. And how'd you find, because you took off to Adelaide, so as a sort of young kid from the country, how'd you find that, you know, out there on your own a little bit? Yeah. Look, it's an, and it's an interesting story. I, I was hell bent on being a Parks and Wildlife Rancher. That was all I ever wanted to do. You know, I got pictures of me as a kid holding snakes and um, <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, cleaning out dingo cages and you know, and, and Remark had the largest reptile park in the country at the time, and I uh, did all my work experience there, and that's all I wanted to do. So even going to Adelaide, it was to you know pursue that path. Mm. And how I got into human resources was was actually through that pursuing that direction. I wanted to be a parks and wildlife ranger. Somebody sort of suggested that do law enforcement in the police department because it's a, such a hot career that uh, increase your chances would be some law enforcement, so police department for a few years and then go back and try to study the parks and wildlife. So I thought, okay, well, that's good advice. So I joined the police force and as uh, that was about sort of six months leading into uh, joining the academy and somebody said, oh, well, if you're joining the police force, you better pursue personnel. That's the future of you know getting somewhere in the police department. Yeah, right. I had no idea what this personnel <laughs> was. <laughs> you probably don't even know what it means now. It's the, the old human resources sort of department at the time. And so, I, I, as part of the job I had in Adelaide, you had to do a bit of study anyway. I was a cadet, a shit graduate program style back then. And so, I started studying human resources by night school mm. and personnel management at the time. Then I got offered this my first HR job at a week before I was joining the police academy. So, yeah, right. and it was paying me $7,000 more than the police department. And in <laughs> those days, that was a lot of money. So I thought, yep. I'll pursue this personnel career. This seems like a good choice. So I didn't join the police department. I got into personnel thinking that it was just going to be something for a few years, finish my football career, and then pursue the parks and wildlife. But 38 years later, no parks and wildlife, still, still in the HR game. Yeah, right. And so, okay, so... Joined, well, didn't make it to the police in the end because you, you bowed <laughs> out. And so where, where did you go then? What what was it about personnel and, and that opportunity that appealed to you? Look, at the time, honest, Dom, it was purely the pay packet. I had no idea really what this <laughs> personnel was about. I joined a company called Arrowcrest, which is, um, was the largest automotive components manufacturer in Australia at the time. It owned ROH wheels, Chevy at wheels. It had offshoots called Brown Built, which is like your compactors, uh, Cockham's, you know, tankers, John Shearer's farm machinery. It was a very large organisation just based out of a little suburb in Adelaide. And so I'm this wide-eyed, you know, bushy-tailed, as you say, 21-year-old first job in personnel. And my job fundamentally was to recruit, you know, a couple of hundred 
process workers every year and I had a bit of OH&S responsibility, a bit of work cover responsibility and was thrown into the deep end but with a couple of pretty cool leaders, very different leaders I might add. I'll mm. talk about that in a second if mm. you like. But uh, thrown into the deep end and so I really just had to, you know, find my way which is probably where my strength lies. You know, I talk about not really academic at school but, you know, I can find a way through most things which has um, sort of got me through life pretty well. And so I just jumped into it and, and got involved. But it was probably the three most influential years in my career, really, in many cases, because I'd been exposed to, you know, recruiting high volume activities in a very heavily industrial manufacturing business. So safety and, and the workers' comp was pretty nasty sort of introduction to, to safety, lots of pretty serious incidents to deal with mm-hmm. as a young person. And industrial relations was also pretty intense. So in those days, you know, lots of sort of industrial action and it got pretty feisty in many cases. I remember being strangled through the fence um, oh God. by one of the, U- one yeah, of the right. union officials. I still believe to this day that the first uh, union official to be arrested on a picket line. So, yeah, that, that got pretty, got pretty, um, well, not nasty, but it got, it was a major, you know, learning curve to be thrown into that environment in the first three years to the point where I talk about experiences, Dom, about, you know, life and being able to adapt. In that three years at Aracris during the 90s recession, I was a personnel officer, a security guard, and then the general manager of sales and marketing of Chevy at Wills. <laughs> so I just, I learned really early to just go with it, adapt. If you invest, you know, into doing the right thing, generally it comes back at you. So I came out of there feeling pretty rounded as a 24, 25-year-old and was offered a job as the personnel officer at a company called the RAA. So it's the Royal Automobile Association in South Australia. A massive brand, very powerful job opportunity, for again, for a youngster. And I thought, oh, I'll grab that. So I went there and then within about eight months, the HR manager went back into politics and so I was slung into being the HR manager of the yeah, RAA right. so- as a 25-year-old. Look, I mean, with both of those roles, it sounds like, you know, as you put it, thrown in the deep end, like uh, pretty intense and just the scale of hiring hundreds of people a year and dealing with the industrial relations as a, what, 23-year-old or, or thereabouts mm. yeah. is pretty big. And, and you mentioned, you know, three big years, most influential years and some of the leaders in there. What what was influential from leadership? Yeah, good pick up on I'm glad you circled back there because I did say that without really commenting. But it, I had a the general manager of HR at the time, who at the time I thought was really painful. He was an academic, super super smart guy, and you know I'm this kid that dropped out of high school from Renmark, and he was really I wouldn't say perfectionistic, but maybe to a degree he was. And so every time I knew I was dealing with him, I knew I had to be on edge to make sure that it was going to be right. And the HR manager, who I think I technically was reported to, he was such a gentleman. He was just such a really caring, supportive guy. So I had these two leaders that I worked Mm. very closely with because I think with the workers' comp and health and safety, I reported sort of directly to one manager and then with everything else I reported to, to the HR manager. So this sort of complexity of different reporting lines and very different styles. But again, it wasn't until hindsight that I knew that Andrew was really actually out to just care for me and set me up for success as a young operator coming in. And those mm. standards to some degree rubbed off. And whilst from, in many cases, I've also been a bit of a recovering perfectionist. I think I picked that up from him having wanting to please him and having these really high standards. But equally, I was then influenced by my other manager, Noel, of you know, just being a genuine, nice, authentic person. So mm. I had this real – and it was just a good place to work. And, again, leadership was probably not something I was intentionally picking up at the time or, you know, the difference between people that were very good at managing things and others that were very good at leading people, sometimes obviously having to do both. But I probably wasn't at the time picking it up deliberately, but I look back and reflect on it and I go – I got a lot of this stuff in a very early stage of my career. Mm. And, you know, again, I say I think it set me up for success from a very early part of my career because I was lucky enough to have such strong characters, you know, developing that early foundation of who and how I wanted to operate to the point where I, you know, I had to make some strong values decisions 
in leaving there based on a couple of incidents that occurred outside of my direct manager's responsibility where I went, you know, that's, that's something i got to be true to myself about and, and made a decision to move on. And I think, again, that was part of my the influence that my leaders had on me to be able to be true and authentic at an early age. Yeah, so that sounds like a pretty big decision that you were faced with there and tell us yeah. more. Yeah, what was going on? <laughs> oh, look, it's, again, typical in the sort of late 80s, early 90s in regards to safety. You know, most organisations, so it's not about business that I, I was involved in, to be honest. I think everybody was dealing with the same thing, which is, you know, we weren't really taking safety as seriously as what nowadays I think we do. And certainly that I had in, in other roles in my career where safety was not just something we spoke about, but was something we intently believed in. And, you know, I had a very strong philosophy in my latter roles around safety of being that we want people to go home in better condition than what we get them. But I don't think that was quite the case in the early phases of my career. So, you know, there were some basic things around safety issues that should have been resolved, you know, early days around asbestos. And, um, right, right. And I sort of found a solution, but it was a costly one because in those days getting rid of asbestos was a challenging complexity and I wasn't supported. So I felt like I had to make a decision that allowed me to move on. But again, as I say, I don't think that was necessarily a reflection of that individual space and organisation. I think it was just where Society was, was kind of act, yeah. Yeah, it was an early phase of genuine safety. But it was a good learning for me because, again, I, I wanted to be true to myself and you know, would I want to be putting my own family in that space? No, I couldn't influence the outcome. So I, I felt like that then the opportunity was to, to go somewhere else where I could. Yeah, right. You know, it's uh, an interesting, interesting challenge though, because it sounded like you had awesome opportunities there as far as growth goes and, and an interesting mix because you mentioned there's the personnel side, but also you're in charge of, was it sales for a certain division and so on? Yeah. You know, so because that's pretty broad. Most people don't get that especially nowadays, don't get that kind of variety, I suppose. So how's that helped you? Well, and eight months in between as a security officer at the front yeah, gate, yeah, right. <laughs> signing in the trucks to deliver off. The hey, it's one way to get trips. to know everyone. You know? <laughs> and you got to know yourself because, you know, in my ego, I'm supposed to be this, you know, young footballer in a small town, Adelaide, personnel, you know, officer of a large, one of the largest companies out of Adelaide to then all of a sudden be sitting on the security gate. How? Why? Like how did So it was through the recession in the nineties and so organizations were downsizing significantly as a result and certainly the automotive industry was taking a big hit. But obviously I'd done something right along the way where they didn't want to lose me. So they uh-huh. said, Look, we uh-huh. we don't want to lose you, but we can't pay you to be in the personnel role. We're not recruiting, so that's half your role. And they said, Look, you know, we contract security. Do you want to go and do that for a few months until we move out of it? And I, I just said, look, I'm happy to give it a try. And I literally sat in a little hut outside checking in trucks. And at, look, it's certainly at some point I thought this is not what I've got. You know, this is where I've got to. But equally, I went, hang on, you know what? We're in the middle of a recession. I've been kept at my same pay. I've been remained in the organization and I'm still working for a pretty good company. So I thought, you know what? Suck it up. There's worse out there. And, you know, before, probably at the time I felt that it was time to try to move on, position came up where they needed a, the general manager of Cheviot who had left and uh, they needed someone to fill in. And it's literally they asked me just to fill in until we recruited the replacement. But it ended up being, you know, I think it was about 12, 14 months, you know, supporting the team. It was a $140 million business. And whilst it's probably not a traditional GM role because there were some other senior leaders that still did the very strategic strategy piece i had to sort of get the team of you know 80 people to manufacture you know store distribute and sell so kind of an operations almost yeah, yeah. aftermarket product and I, so that that gave me again this broad early experience awesome. that yeah probably in many cases when i sort of pull it back to the hr world is i got an early exposure to being in business and so therefore a lot of my and and i've had other roles in business as well but I think that it allows me to when I am giving advice around, you know, leadership and, and general HR and people matters, I can do it from the perspective of I've sort of been in the line management roles as well. And therefore it's it's not sort of hands off advice. It's, you know, hopefully pretty practical advice because mm. I've been in those roles myself. And in fact, in reality, I've learned more about 
human resources in those line management roles than I've ever learned in 30-odd years in being a HR leader. So, you know, in many cases, I, I think the best HR leaders are the ones that have had that line management experience. Mm, it's definitely enriching. And you talked about, you know, there's a bit of an ego check there when, uh, you know, you became the security guard for a while. Sounded like that's where you're going of just needing to, uh, yeah, check. I guess it was a confronting or a bit of a challenge. Like, oh, you know, I thought I was up to here. I was leading this, <laughs> doing all this stuff and I'm on the booth. Yeah. Oh, look, I think, you know, healthy ego is something that is a good thing, but it's managing that and keeping it in check and keeping it in on the line of being a healthy ego versus it becomes an unhealthy one. And look, I, I, again, in hindsight, I wasn't sure I was doing that very well at the time, but I was aware that I was not feeling as special as I thought I might have needed to be. But equally, mm. I think the lesson in life that it gave me was immense. But yeah, I was, I was having to decide what was best. And I was grateful that I think I matured enough to, or was mature enough at the time to sort of just sit back and let that play out. And I think the benefits certainly outweighed the pain at the time. Yeah, you know, it wasn't easy going to the pub with your mates and talking about the fact that you know how was your security day, checking right, in trucks. Right, right. That that wasn't wasn't easy at the time, but in hindsight, it definitely didn't impact me negatively. And subsequently, probably was a foundation builder that helped continue to grow. Mm. Yeah, so that was good. And then, as I say, I moved on to the RAA, which was another sort of three years of probably one of the most important value builders in my career. I had a lot of amazing people that backed me at an early stage. And again, in Adelaide, it's a bit of, bit of a conservative town. And to be such a young person, being the HR manager of the RAA wasn't sort of normal. And again, most of my colleagues and the exec level were you know, 45 plus. So I was this young whippersnapper walking into a space that I had to lead a function. But again, weren't really quick just to back myself and, and trust in, in what I, I think because I never really believed that I knew what, to do that I was always open to learning and right. didn't have to have the answers. Right. That wasn't something I learned later on. I think although I'm relearning that again now where I'm going, actually, I still don't really know anything close to what anyone will ever learn in their life. I, I probably am, again, back in a full circle of being very open to learning more now than I probably have been for a while. But those early days, I was very happy to be a learner. Um, so I think that indeed me to a lot of people that if I was there at that age trying to tell everyone what to do is if I knew that might have backfired. You know, because like it makes sense when you say it like that, but there's also a situation where, hey, I'm the youngest person on this exec team and like I've got to prove that I belong here and have all the answers and be across everything and, you know, be a bit of a Rambo, you know, like I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna make it all happen by myself. Yeah. There's a temptation to do that as well. Totally. Yeah, look, I, I think I, you know, I don't believe in this concept. Oh, I was lucky. I think, you know, people that say that probably just not accepting that sometimes things happen and we put in a certain level of effort and sometimes it, we get a disproportionate positive impact and we say, oh, that was luck. No, not really. I just think it was what it is what it is. But in, in some cases in that early stage of my career, I probably was a little bit lucky that in a small town, Adelaide, playing football, having a CEO that like that you know we had a really strong relationship he sort of supported me not protected but probably yeah maybe protected me from what other reality could have occurred and so I was fortunate at least that my style and the support of another good leader gave me a chance to learn and embed me as a person and as a future HR leader not to get a bit ahead of myself I did get a lesson a few years later from a another good leader of mine who pulled me aside and said, you need to pull your head in, you're getting too big for your boots. That was a few years down the track. But at this early stage, I was really fortunate, I think, that my approach and my style was supported by some really good leadership around me. And so maybe that's what started to give me that confidence to you know, think that I did wear my underpants on the outside um, <laughs> and started to believe in my own self-worth down the track but certainly in those early stages I think I, I was lucky to be able to keep it in check and it worked really well. Tell us more then so at what point did that cross over and yeah so in those earlier stages of my career industrial relations was still a massive part of what the broader personnel HR management function did so I went into my first consulting gig 
in the SA Employees Chamber. And largely that role was to sort of get people out of trouble that had sacked somebody the wrong way or <laughs> uh, were, try, were trying to negotiate an enterprise agreement, wasn't working. And so we, we generally were a very responsive sort of business. A colleague of mine and I sort of wanted to develop this space where instead of just getting people out of trouble after the incident, let's actually help them, you know, learn what to do proactively ahead of it. So how, you know, how do you discipline? How do you coach? How do you dismiss somebody in a more effective way? Sadly, if you have to, you do. So we set up a sort of training OD arm at the employees chamber and it worked really well. And so that sort of put me into the, this OD, organizational development, training, leadership right, right, right. space for the first time. So I then moved to ANSET. And I'll, for some of our younger listeners, they <laughs> won't know who that is, but it was a, an airline and a very long-term successful airline. And so I was hired as the regional HR manager for South Australian Northern Territory, WA. And so that was sort of really my first senior role in many cases because it was a much larger organization and mm-hmm. a much broader role and a much mm. more complex role. And so moved into that, again, worked with some amazing leaders. I've, I've been extremely well lucky to have so many great leaders early on. I've had a couple of challenging ones since, but we'll, we'll come to those, I'm sure. But I was really fortunate, again, to be supported, had a great job. I was then promoted and, and asked to come to Melbourne, which is where I now reside. Uh, and that was 25 years ago, mm. uh, to come into a corporate uh, head of HR role. And that was at a time where the organization had a new CEO in Rod Eddington, who's probably still the single best leader I think I've ever ha- worked with. Why? Um, he was literally a rocket scientist. So you can imagine having somebody <laughs> who comes in as the new CEO to rescue this organization that had, had sort of 10 years of pretty poor, planet, poor, poor financial performance to rescue it. He's a rocket scientist and probably one of the leading airline you know, executives at the time, if not the leading airline executive. And it sort of just scared the pants off a few of us to think, you know, what's going to happen here? But he was an incredible leader at every level. Mm-hmm. He was able to, within a short period of time, able to come into an organization that was a bit rudderless for a long period of time. And after having very strong management style, Approach. So, right. I think I think the CEO used to sign every letter that ever left the organisation. Right. Ten thousand signatures a, a week was was what he Christ. did. Versus Rod, Rod came in and within a sh- incredibly short period of time, three to six months, had set a very clear strategy that everybody understood and bought into. I had a, to lead a program of six hundred leadership roles into about three hundred and fifty. Mm. And a process of everybody having to reapply for their jobs and, for that matter, any other job that they were interested in. But it ultimately meant that 200-odd leaders were no longer going to be in the same role, if a role if at all. all. Mm. And these were people that still have close relationships with colleagues uh, despite all of that. And that was based on the fact that Rod knew how to set a vision, connect everybody to it, create buy-in, treat everybody with total respect. Everybody was a team player. You know, we had no... I could walk into anyone's office, no matter what their hierarchical level is. They could come and have a chat to any one of us, no matter which department they were from. We all knew each other's families. And this was a 10,000, 12,000-person organization. Mm. It was just an incredible culture. And, you know, the three years of Rod taking control, it was the three best financial years of the company history. Mm. It was written up by the Financial Review with the best turnaround in Australian company corporate history at the time. Again, unfortunately not not known by a lot of people who know it's just to collapse. The interesting thing is I think that everyone got 98 cents in the dollar, so I'm not sure why it was ever put into administration, but that's for another time. Um, <laughs> you can hear the passion in my voice yeah. about the company that, that you know, taught us all a lot and gave us all a lot. And so, yeah, I moved into that corporate head of HR role and my, my boss at the time, Paul Birch, great guy, you know, he pulled me aside and said, look, just be careful you know you i was getting a bit ahead of myself i was pretty confident ego was probably not in check and i was in my early 30s and again i think it was just probably at a stage of career in life where i i did just get ahead of myself how was it showing up ash talk a lot so i'd always have an opinion on something some would argue i haven't stopped doing that but uh it was definitely playing out with things like that dom that i you know i always had to have a have my say I may not have been as balanced and as, as constructive in communicating my thoughts to people as I hope I am now. Yeah, it was just sort of 
was one of the times that I learned the lesson that we were given two ears and one mouth in that ratio for a reason and I think I was swapping it around. I was talking twice as much as I was listening. And to Paul's credit, you know, he had the relationship with me but also the courage to, to pull me aside and say, pull your head in. And it was done in a way that I totally respected. I felt I was letting down one of my colleagues, mates, not a boss, talk about, you know, being able to give a constructive piece of feedback. He, he did it well and I and I felt like I really needed to just have a reflection in the mirror as to what was going on and what did people see that I had to get that feedback. It was a very important time for me to, to get that. So it worked well. We, um, I think, well, certainly at the end, I was promoted to the head of HR for the Australian and New Zealand ANSET business. So I, I must have taken the advice done, on it. Done something. Done something with it. So you, you I think know, it was the largest role in the business at the time. So. You know what, Dash? It's a great example. Like in workshops, I often talk about, you know, people are oh, like, you want to give people direct feedback, you know? And, and sometimes I think people bring the sledgehammer of truth to that conversation sometimes, yeah. which doesn't really work because they won't actually listen to what you have to say. And I think you've just illustrated a beautiful example of why could he give you that feedback? Because you had the relationship with him. And it's like, I, f- I feel like I'm almost letting him down just as like, a, you know, like we've got such a tight relationship. I really value what, what you know, he has to say and, and his views and so on. You know, and so you listen when yeah. someone has, you know, when you have that and, and you know they care for you, you listen. Yeah, and I, I agree, Dom, with the sort of comment in workshops and just general coaching conversations, you know, people get still a bit confused around tough feedback. feels like it's still coming out of the sort of more aggressive defensive space versus the toughest feedback I've ever got and or had to give has totally come out of the constructive mm. space. It's about being true to yourself and true to them that this is a time, the right time to give the feedback. It's done in a tone and a respectful way. It's done in a way that says, you know, and Paul did this. He said, you know, is there something I need to do to help you? And so I think the most powerful feedback and the most clear and you know, toughest feedback I've ever given or received is totally out of the constructive space and not out of that aggressive defensive space of telling somebody they've done wrong. You know, I think by the time you've got to that part stage, you've lost your ability to control the narrative. And so, yeah, that and again, a lot of my lessons in life have been very much through osmosis of these sorts of examples that mm. you don't really notice until you reflect on, like this conversation to say, yeah, actually that was probably where I learned to provide valuable, timely you know, constructive feedback that meant more to me than other times where I've had a, a manager or a boss sort of just want to not take responsibility for their own actions and put it yeah. onto you and you just walk away going, that's not going to impact me one bit. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting you said that he uh, gave the feedback, what can I do to support you or along those lines, right, which is him also owning it as, hey, I'm your leader, what can I do? You know, yeah, which which I think yeah. means you're more open because hey, he's open to getting some feedback right then as well. So, yep, and we we were able to have a relationship where he was able to give me a sort of a raised eyebrow whilst I was working <laughs> through the de- the development of a different approach. You know, my nickname was Frank, and so <laughs> so again, I was, right. but I I was open, always have been, but I was open to feedback. I just didn't know that that's what people were seeing and experiencing. So the fact that I was able to get that timely feedback, I was able to be open and had people around me that were able to go elbow in the ribs. Hey, that's one of those examples. And you go, okay, great. Thanks. I got it. And you can learn and, and develop from there. Mm. So yeah, look, again, an incredible time. And so we know, yeah, we know what ended up with ANSET is, is kind of what you touched on before. Yes. So I was working for obviously uh, one of the largest New Zealand-based organisations in Air New Zealand and, and then moved over to the single largest organisation <laughs> out of New Zealand, Carter Holt Harvey, as their head of people and culture for their tissue division and responsible for the group OD. So there was a slight matrix sort of environment. But that was a really cool space. Um, talk about, you know, simple things like toilet paper and tissues and nappies. You know, you think that's a pretty basic organisation, but to deal with a board that also has put a seed in the ground and wait 30 years for a tree to grow mm. and an FMCG division, the complexities in trying to manage that mm. was quite incredible. And so the decision-making and the learning, commercial learning that I picked up in those, those roles in Carter Holt Harvey between sort of, you know, 
slow-moving juggernaut, successful one at that, with a you know one and a half billion dollar division in FMCG having to make decisions worth 30, 40, 50 million overnight so you can hold shelf space was a very difficult juggling act to get decision makers to understand and buy into. So I really thoroughly enjoyed that time there. And again, I hadn't reflected until we're having this conversation about the leadership journey that occurred there. I went from having one of the most incredible leaders, very successful, fell out politically. The business was incredibly profitable. We'd made about a 30% increase in productivity versus EBIT bottom line, but fell out politically with his boss and was replaced with an, another gentleman, let's say, that had a incredibly different style, so a very dictating style. And again, one of my lessons in life was that I was hopeful to influence that, but at, at the time he wasn't open for that, so I started my own consulting business. And, uh, I mean, and- yeah, you, you kind of just... Skipped over that a little, but that's a massive decision. Yeah, and again, I was, think I was only about 35 when I did that. And I again, leaving you know, three young kids, leaving the security of a you know, well-paid job in a job that I'd loved, worked for a great guy, another great leader. So I was so spoiled in all of these journeys that I was having such great leadership experience. And probably for the first time, I, I had to deal with a very poor leadership experience. And whilst it was probably the right time for me to try something different after sort of, you know, 15, 16 years in the corporate life, which mm-hmm. is not a long, lot of time, but it was sort of very much, you know, from a young, young was, man. Sounds to, pretty dense, you know, like yeah, pretty dense. Yeah. You had a lot of experiences in that time. Yeah. And I think whilst in hindsight, that's been a great experience. I was drained. I needed mm-hmm. something different. Mm-hmm. And so I think the catalyst of having such a poor leader experience sort of gave me the push to do something different. So I went out and, and did my own consulting business and within a really within the first sort of four to six weeks, I was five days a week consulting in multiple different companies, but largely because I'd had that network and it was a time where organizations were sort of doing it a bit more outsourcing than they'd traditionally done. So again, timing was, was a great historical hindsight benefit, but it was great to get out and do my own thing and put the test as they say, uh, rubber to the road as to how could I do it on my own as opposed to having the security of a of a large corporate. So um, how did you find that? For about 10 years. Because you mentioned in passing as well, there's three kids by this point stepping <laughs> out on your own. I mean, that's that's a big call, big call to make yeah. from, you know, a pretty secure, big job, pretty secure, must have been, I'm assuming, you know, fairly well paid and all that to suddenly being out on your own. That's a bit scary. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was. It was also where I realized that I, I knew so little about life, work, the profession that I was in because, again, when you're sort of out there talking to you know, 20, 30 different companies, totally different strategies, backgrounds, industries, etc., versus that comfort of the one single place where you become quite familiar and safe. But, again, I think because I've always been very reflective, been open to feedback, just open. Then, you know, it worked well. I loved every bit of it and it sort of only really came to a bit of an end. I, I um, ended up getting sick. So that was a bit of a life changing experience. So when I sort of got well again, you know, looking at three young kids, you went, actually, I don't know that I want to be working on my own in my own consulting business with all the stresses that that had and decided to go back into a, the security of a, of a corporate. But yeah, the 10 years was, was amazing. I loved every bit of it, the exposure, the experience, the growth. It probably set me up long-term to where I am now around particularly culture and leadership and leadership impact for me is a passionate passion of mine. I've sort of been able to influence a lot of organisations and a lot of the leaders over that time to hopefully be a little bit better than they were the day before. And so thoroughly enjoyed every bit of it. But yes, after a little hiccup along the way, which you know, everyone has to deal with from time to time, I decided that it was probably better for me to be in a just sort of not safety from a payroll thing, but just safety in knowing you know you've got your colleagues around you, you you've got a bit of stability in the in the environmental part around you. Because what we do now is exactly what it was like running my own business. We have the breadth and depth and challenges. I love that, but I've got it in the security of a mm. team of mm. colleagues around me. And as you know, we 
we chat through things all the time. We experience things together. Mm. And so it's just that security mm. of having a colleague with you to, to work through versus sometimes as you run your own business, you're the chief bottle washer, chairperson, you know, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. secretary, you're doing it all. consultant. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so that was the only real ch- reason for change. But I, again, I, and ho- you know, horses, of course, as you do, you do things at a time that suit your environment, your lifestyle, where your head and heart's at. And, and uh, that's what I've done. And you, you mentioned a bit of a hiccup along there, you know, in, in the health department. I guess, you know, it was probably fairly young to, well, was it? You tell me. You know, <laughs> like fairly young to, you know, have that kind of scare. Yeah. So, yeah, it was. And again, I'm not just being philosophical. I, I wouldn't change one bit of it. The impact that it had on me as a person to be a bit more true to my values. The relationship I have with my kids now is incredible. I just couldn't be prouder of that. And that came from that experience. So, you know, yes, as you know, I got testicular cancer, which is not an overly complex cancer in many cases. It's quite aggressive and can be it must quite be scary complex. though, like when you get that news, like yeah, the yeah, big C word, quite, you know? Yeah, and Dr. Google was the worst thing I could have done. <laughs> it always um, is. Yes, so, of course, I'd Googled it, trying to understand my ultrasound results and super panicked yeah. and went into whole sorts of dark spots. Luckily for me, that was on a Friday, Friday the 13th, by the way. So, I don't oh, go to the doctor really? on Friday the 13th. Oh, God, dude. Because <laughs> the mother of my children also, and this is not a word of lie, my, the mother of my children also had ovarian cancer and she was diagnosed on Friday wow. the 13th. Wow. So we did we never took a couple our kids of years apart or what? Yes, it was about five years apart. Wow, so we did still a lot. A lot. Yep. Yeah. We don't take our kids to the hot, uh, to the doctors no. ever on Friday the thirteenth. No. Um no. we just we tell them to sniffle up for the next day and go on the fourteenth. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, so that was an interesting experience. Uh, one of the things I talk about in coaching is, you know, what life changing experiences have we had and what mm. impacts that had on mm. So yeah, sort of seeing your kids looking at you on a critical care life support system for a few days because I had multiple blood clots and complications. Um, yeah, it changes right. your thinking. Do I really want to do this 14-hour days to make lots mm. of money and running my own consulting business or mm. not? And the short answer was no, I don't. I want to be healthy and yeah, relaxed and happy and be able to sort of grow up knowing that I can see the kids, which mm. has been absolutely the outcome as a result. So, mm. you know, I, I try to have a, a strong balance in my life between the energy that I want to put into my work and you know, my kids and my family are my number one priority. And I feel like I've attained that balance uh, completely now. And mm. as a result of that sort of life experience, it really put me, put the focus for me into being balanced. That's probably the best way I could describe it, Dom. It's mm. not about being incredibly utopian. It's just about just being balanced, put life into balance and try yeah. to put as much time into everything that's important to you as you can and not allow too many things to get dominated over the others that are important. Mm-hmm. And so I, went, I've, I did that. Um, yeah, as I say, I think I'm in a great space now and a, the test for me is the relationship I have with my loved ones, which is my measure of success over any bank account or job title or any mm-hmm. of those sorts of things. So mm-hmm. uh, that was the outcome of that experience and another lesson in life around making sure that when we, you know, as leaders, we're aware of other people's life moments and how do we support them and not just think about things in a day-to-day basis uh, being separated from people's outside lives Mm. they are all part of who we are strengths and opportunities that that provides you know i must say as well like through doing this work you know coaching people and and doing even accreditation workshops and whatnot i think one of the things i've really grown to appreciate is you don't know what what people have going on yeah you know either today or in the past or, or what have you but I don't think I always appreciated that of everyone Everyone has stuff going on, you know. Yeah, it's a great point and, you know, we do accreditation and we have a, a process where we ask a you know, question about do we, you know, do people understand what some of these thinking styles are, where they've come from and, and it's not for everybody but for a lot of the people we coach and accredit it's, is that conversation of, you know, something that's happened with them or or is currently happening and you just go, wow, okay, so no wonder your thinking style is that or Mm. people are seeing some of these behaviours. And I think more now than I've ever done in in things like accreditation has been so 
careful to help people realize as they're, de- they're going to be debriefers to, that everybody, as you said, has a story. And it doesn't have to be dramatic, but, it, mm. but it's still a tough story or a big story or a challenging situation for that person at the time. And being able to respect and support them during that is a very powerful thing. And again, that's something I've learned more and more as I've got older is I think I knew it academically and intellectually, but now it's something that I actually feel and mm. I'm much prouder as to the how I approach things like that than I used to. Hey, um, on, on that, Ash, I, I guess I'm just wondering because, you know, getting that news and, you know, at a challenging time for you, and maybe you did for a while, I guess, I kind of think of S plus T equals R and what, what's the story we tell ourselves about the situation? You know, and, and in a, you know, that's a big challenging situation. That's a big capital S. What stopped you, or maybe maybe you did go down here, but what pulled you out? Maybe of the going down the a bit of the woe is me, like you know, yeah. like what you know what I mean? And and it's one of those things again. I totally understand that someone would because that's a big challenging situation. But I guess correct. If there was one thing, I've always been open to talk to people about how I feel, good, bad, or indifferent. Uh-huh. And I think as a, as a consequence of that. I've been surrounded by people that are aware of how I'm feeling and they can choose, not everyone does, of course, but they can choose to then lean in and support you as a result. Mm. So I was surrounded by a huge amount of incredible people who were able to lean in and support me because I was open to sharing Mm. what was happening for me. Mm. The funny thing is that a lot of people who have experienced health-related sort of challenges, when you're the person with the health issue, You've got something to manage. You've got something to deal with. So you deal with it. Mm. It's others around you who are sort of a bit helpless that probably are struggling more at the time. Interesting. But because I've always been so open to tell me what I'm doing, tell me what you think, or I will share, this is what I'm feeling, this is what I think, you know, what would you do in that situation or what advice do you have for me, that I was able to get that support. So I felt supported from the get-go. So I didn't really feel like I was ever going to sort of you know, go down a path that was going to be tough to come out of whilst obviously had plenty of dips and trips along mm. the way. Mm. I was I was supported. So that was the I think the single biggest thing for me. Mm. I think the thing that I would also take out of it that I hopefully share with people in, in just day to day life is sometimes those moments don't impact you there and then. It's sort of down the track when there's you know, for me it was birthdays and and moments where uh-huh. you know my own parents weren't around and that they you sort of reflected and went, Oh my God, you know, that that could have been me or, you know, what about mm. if? And mm. so it's a little sometimes it's a little bit down the track. So again, it might not be right there and then that, you know, you're that somebody's got an experience, but they're feeling it. They're reflective of it and they're maybe not dealing with it as well as I'd like to. So again, I think sometimes we can be really judgmental about, well, what do you mean? That was five years ago. Yeah, but you know, it's come back and it's a little bit uncomfortable for me now. Just talking in theory. So, yeah, I think for me, Dom, at the time, the benefit was being open to sharing and therefore I got the support. But I think sometimes we need to remind ourselves that life-changing experiences can be something that impacts people much later on for different reasons Mm -hmm. and therefore it's still a relevant challenge that might have been a historical thing but it's still something that they're dealing with in today's world. And, you know, sometimes they have a current experience that sort of brings that one back up that, you know, becomes a a relevant challenge for them again. So as you said before about being just really respectful that everybody's got a bit of a backstory. And again, I think we can we don't want to over dramatize those sometimes mm. on behalf of others, but being respectful if it's important and and challenging for them that that we're there to support them and not just sort of one of the things I picked up in a program I did positive psychology was a term called um comparative suffering. Mm. It basically you can't do it. <laughs> so your relative yeah, well, experience your, right yours your, wasn't as bad as someone else's or something yeah so i should feel better because it's not as bad as it could be but you can only go by the experience and and what's relevant for well, the, you. so the, the worst thing that ever happened to you is the worst thing that ever happened to you do you sure. know what i mean like because <laughs> you haven't done the other thing so it's like no. still the worst thing yeah so you can appreciate it and be empathetic but yes the sympathy aspect of not experiencing it and therefore sort of sort of downplaying your own experiences, being, oh, I, sh- I shouldn't be feeling like that's not as bad. Yes. If it's still your relative challenge at the time, then I think others have got to respect that and, and support you as, as they should and need. So, yeah, I was really lucky around that. 
And again, I still take that my own behavior into my day to day world now, which is maybe sometimes I'm accused of oversharing, but I'm very happy to share. I'm a sharer. I like to let people know good, better, and different where I'm at. And that way, I'm really fortunate to be surrounded by lots of really caring, supportive people as a result. I'm not sure that all of those same people are as open the other way as they mm. should, but not everybody is. That's the other lesson I'm learning more as I get older is I'm really happy with feedback and comfortable with sharing, but not everybody is. Mm. And so I have to respect that. Mm. So, uh, yeah, lessons in life don't stop. If they stop, you've probably closed yourself off. True. And, and so where to after there, Ash? So you kind of talked about, you know, you're in your own consulting thing, but, hey, maybe this experience left you you know, wanting to change it up a bit? Yeah, so I had a number of clients at the time and uh, whilst I didn't have the headspace and the physical space to continue to deal with those multiple clients, I had a had one client who um, I'd been working with for about two or three years offered me a full-time job as a HR manager, yeah. head, of, head of HR. So, again, that security of sort of regular contact coming into the office and having a team of people around me was appealing. Mm. Um, so I, I took that role on and did that for a little bit longer and then decided that it was probably something that I wanted to grow my career back in. So again, I've been consultant for 10 years. At the time, senior HR roles weren't really being filled by ex-consultants. There was a little bit of anti-consulting sort of philosophy at the time. Right. And so it was a little bit hard, but I, I eventually picked up a role in a, in a large travel company, which thoroughly loved and so I was back in that corporate space doing that sort of you know senior HR role particularly from an organizational development frame so most of the roles that I or the two roles particularly that I did back in corporates in between doing what we do now which is uh, back at human synergistics which is where I'll be taken out in a box I suspect as in, I'll finish my career here. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> I was going to say, bad, bad turn of phrase to use. Uh, but yep, sure. Yeah, so, you know, I'd, I'd like to finish my career here. It's the type of work that I love doing and a good bunch of people. So, you know, while I don't really hopefully see myself doing anything different than this, but I did look for that sort of corporate support for a little period of time, which, I again, I thoroughly loved. I've never really never really had to, I think, probably from my, other than that first role of, having to choose to leave a safety culture that wasn't quite right. I've really sort of been fortunate to be able to move in a place where I've I've been happy and things have been good, but I just decided that, look, it's time to do something else. And I think I've always battled probably between the sort of consulting and house role, but it's probably been largely due to my own personal circumstances that I've had to make those shifts versus any other real challenging complexities because I love the breadth and depth of consulting, but also obviously those in-house roles just give you that little sense of security. So, yeah, I went back into corporate role, a couple of corporate roles there for a bit, as I say, focusing where the company really largely needed culture Mm. or leadership Mm. sort of focus. Um, That's really my passion. The HR management stuff's probably way out of my skill set nowadays, but always had good team members around me that focused on that side of things and so we're able to deliver on that side of things well and well over my capability so I was able to focus on the leadership and cultural drive and support which I've been really proud of the type of work that we've done in that space and and then COVID hit and not and being in the travel industry during COVID generally wasn't wasn't (laughs) a good mix and again I think there was a lot of senior people in in roles that you know making a lot of other people redundant and I think it was important that that I you know wasn't sitting there taking up a large salary whilst others have been made redundant. So for me, it was time to also be able to show some leadership and be seen to be doing what you're asking others to do. So I was quite comfortable to step out. I sort of decided that I wanted to go back into consulting really at that point and finish my career off in that space. And uh, obviously having worked with HS for over 20 years, both in my own business and a previous employee, of HS, then it was a no-brainer for me to reach out and come back, which I've thoroughly enjoyed and not regretted that decision one bit. So we're back full circle. That's it. And that kind of brings us up to today, I guess, Ash. So you're, you know, set up down in Melbourne, running stuff down there for us, you know, which is, uh, and it's cool to have you back. You know, it's interesting hearing the story because I knew some of your backstory and stuff, but not all of it. And there's probably more that I'm sure we've left out as well. but. It strikes me 
from hearing it, just the variety, particularly of industries and so on that you've been involved in is, is pretty massive. Yeah, it's interesting, Don, because, you know, we, as you know, our, part of our role when we're out there talking to clients is we're not only selling sort of a tool or a product or a consulting offering, you know, in many cases, we're sort of selling ourselves as a relationship that the client's buying into in many mm. cases. And I often reflect on either the question from the client or just offering it up myself is I quite often talk about that what I bring is not a highly technical, competent, you know, state-of-the-art, contemporary thinker in you know, leadership or organizational development frameworks, but a very practical, commercially orientated, connected approach to implementing successfully some of those, those models and approaches. And I think that just largely comes from my background, which is whatever tools in my kit bag that I've had, you know, they might not be the glossiest, shiniest current versions of, but I've been able to see them work and implement them with comfort and confidence, both being in a line management role, seeing it come from the other side, in a HR management role, having to own it, and being from a consulting perspective where, you, you know, you've got to prove your worth. And so I think it's about that breadth and depth that I've had. I use it in a practical way versus a highly technical sort of academic way, if that's the right way to put it. It's probably not. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I've loved the breadth and depth. I try not to abuse that. I try to use it to its full effect. It's awesome. And what floats your boat nowadays, Ash? What lights the fire? (laughs) I think because I'm at a stage in my life and my career where, you know, we talk about, you know, being authentic and true to your own style and leadership. You know, for me, that comes from courage. It comes from a place of being, you know, able to be true to your your own needs based on that you can do so. You know, you're not fearful of losing your job or that you can't put a roof over your head and you can feed the family. Mm. Whilst obviously the Reserve Bank's made that a bit tougher for a few of us. (laughs) Um, You know, I'm in a good space emotionally, professionally, personally. So I feel good about being able to turn up to work and just be my very best version of self and lucky working in HS as we do, you know, we're supported by very authentic leaders as well. So we supported, we're backed to do that. And so I love being able to go out and, and work with clients now where I can be really courageous and authentic and provide that sort of 35 plus years of experience. Not everyone has to take it up, not everyone has to believe it, not everyone does. But I'm really enjoying the ability to be able to be authentic to my clients. And sometimes that's about telling them what they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. And so far, touch wood, that that's working really well. So I'm thoroughly enjoying that. I love the impact work. I love working in the space where I can help leaders understand not just what their thinking and behavior is through our long established LSI process, but I love working in the impact space to help connect leaders to what it is that they're impacting others to do and the impact that has on culture and the impact that that has on individuals, not only at work, but also what happens as a result of your impact as a leader to our teams when they go home. So I'm very passionate about impact. As leaders, we take on a role and a, and a responsibility and that I think sometimes we misunderstand that or downplay it and I think it's a great privilege and, and so I'm, I'm really keen to continue to work with people to say, Hey, look, it's a tough gig, by the way. It's a, it's a seriously hard job to be a leader of people. But when we take on the pay packet and the title, you know, let's deal with that responsibly and be the leader that we want our most loved ones to have. And so, yeah, I'm really passionate, as hopefully you can tell in my voice, around mm. impact, leadership impact is, is where I try to spend a bit of my time. You know, and we heard through your own story the impact those different leaders had. And sometimes I think we don't stop to think about that, but it's worth doing, you know, thinking about the leaders that kind of shaped your journey, both for the better and the worst, maybe. Sometimes the best examples come from the other ones, but but that's also learning and also interesting. Totally, yeah. And look, you know, at the time, I probably dwelled a bit too much on the negatives, but Mm -hmm. I now just reflect as much as I can about the positive experience that I had and just how do you replicate that? How do you help people feel safe to be their best leadership? version of themselves and provide an impact that they're talked about down the track in the podcast you know i've mentioned three or four names of people who i if i ran into the street i'd give a big hug and i haven't probably seen them for 15 years but that was the impact they had i'd prefer to think about that than the one or two small negatives that i've had along the way but as you say they're learnings but don't dwell on take the learning and move on focus on the positive that's awesome thanks for sharing your story today with us ash 
I know I learned a lot. It was really interesting, actually. So oh, thanks for that, mate. Pleasure. We'll have to reciprocate one time and hear a bit more about your story. Yeah, let's do it. All right, mate. <laughs> thanks. Take care. Thanks for listening to this episode of Culture Bites. If you enjoy the show, remember to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. Also, leave us a review. It helps other people to find the show. If you have a question you'd like us to answer, email podcast at human-synergistics.com.au. We'd love to answer it. This podcast is copyrighted by Human Synergistics Australia, all rights reserved. To learn more about what we do, visit human-synergistics.com.au.